From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. On today's show, we're talking to Elizabeth Warren. And because we're talking to Elizabeth Warren, we're talking about haunted dolls. These are a crucial part of the Elizabeth Warren origin story, as I was recently discussing with my colleague, Rebecca Traster. She talks about how from the time she was a little girl, she wanted to be a teacher from the time she was in second grade. And she would line her dolls up and yell at them for not doing their homework. I remember that photo she posted on Instagram of like, the world's most terrifying dolls, like oh. haunted-looking dolls <laughs> lined up above her They're bed. They're haunted because a small eight-year-old was telling them that they need to hand in their homework. <laughs> in this photo, you see little Elizabeth Warren sitting on her bed. On a shelf above her are almost 20 dolls, their faces frozen, their arms flung upward in mute terror. Or, perhaps, like they're raising their hands very hard, like they really want someone to call on them. Here I am with my doll collection, says the caption. To be fair, dolls were, just in general, much spookier looking in the late 1950s. But if they seem to be haunted by some encounter with educational authority, so do we, the American voting public. The mean teacher, the sour school marm, the trunch bull, someone marking up your worksheets with a red pen and embarrassing you in front of the class. The specter of the teacher combines anxieties about women and intellectual insecurity into one handy package. And she haunts us long after graduation. There was a moment in last week's debate when Warren basically threatened the class with detention. She was trying to finish a story about a father with ALS, and there was a rustle of laughter from the audience. This isn't funny, she told the crowd. This is somebody who has health insurance and is dying. Warren wasn't messing around. She was mad. And even if you weren't laughing, it was enough to give you a pit-in-the-stomach feeling of having fucked up bad. Personally, I went to an elementary school where we called our teachers by their first names and they used a rain stick to get us to shut up. Which is to say, it was a much more Marianne Williamson kind of scene. But for a lot of people, a moment like that stern reprimand from Warren strikes a nerve. Either it conjures some memory for them, or they assume that it's conjuring some memory for other people. And either way, they get scared. For as long as Warren's been on the national stage, people who want to dismiss what she's saying have been calling her professor like it's an insult. Here she is in 2005, talking to the Senate Judiciary Committee. The senator she's addressing is Joe Biden. Senator, if you're not going to fix that problem, you can't take away the last shred of protection for these families. You're a very good professor. When Warren first ran for Senate back in 2011, her opponent, Scott Brown, made a point to call her professor whenever possible. During one debate, he told her, excuse me, I'm not a student in your classroom. It's true that at the time, Warren had spent most of her 45-year career teaching in various classrooms. It's also true that she beat Scott Brown and won that Senate race. Here's the thing. Calling Warren a teacher isn't an insult. It's a fact. It's who she is. And more than that, it's what she does. She teaches. So what does that actually mean? What's it like to sit in Elizabeth Warren's classroom? And what can that tell us about what it would be like to have Elizabeth Warren as president? Last month, Rebecca Traster and producer Sarah McVie went to Cambridge to find out. They met Warren at home. The senator welcomed them warmly and offered them many beverages, all of which were tea. There are tea? Come on, I'm a tea person. (laughs) At Elizabeth Warren's house, you can have sun tea. It's brewing on the porch. Or you can do a, a flavored tea that's got a little vanilla almond in it. 
Which way do you want to go? I want the flavored tea that has vanilla and almond. This is Sarah. Hi, Hi Sarah. What kind of tea would you like? Um, I'll have whatever. So they all sat on her sun porch and talked. Tell us about when you decided you wanted to become a teacher. Oh, it was in second grade. And it was Mrs. Lee. Oh, Mrs. Lee of ample bosom and many hugs. <laughs> oh, Mrs. Lee, who, who had this sparkling, clean classroom. Do you, do you know what I mean? It, always, it smelled nice. Her room was, was just a place you wanted to be in. And so Mrs. Lee used to lend me, I, I was a good reader. <clears throat> and we had three reading groups called the Bluebirds, the Redbirds, and the Yellowbirds. And she used to let me sit with a little group of the struggling readers and do extra reading. And I'd sit there with six or seven kids and help them through that we'd start with one of the readers. And I love to read. I love to read for the stories. But to sit with someone who's a beginning reader or a struggling reader and start to figure out how they see it. So break it down. If you were going to break it into two parts, what would the word, what's the first part of the word? So let's sound that part out. So it starts with T, t, t you know, until you build it up and put the word together. So t, 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 ta, tall, ah, tall, but it's got a second part to it, er, tall, er, tall, er, until, and then it happens. And when it happens, it's double because you watch it happen in someone else's eyes, that, that flash, that spark that I went from not knowing to knowing. I went from, from trying to climb the hill to being on top of the hill. And it happens in, in their face, and it happens then in my heart instantly, my brain. It's enormously intimate. And partway through that year, Mrs. Lee at one point said to me, Miss Betsy, that's what she always called me. She said, you know, Miss Betsy, you could be a teacher. And bam, I was sold. I was in. I had already loved doing it, but it never crossed my mind. I could actually be a teacher. I would... I hadn't thought much about it. I was in second grade, right? I hadn't worked on this for a long time. Yes, didn't have it quite mapped out yet. But once she said that, something shifted. So when people would talk about the future or when kids would talk about what they wanted to do, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. That doesn't sound like too crazy of a dream. Teaching was one of the few careers that welcomed young women when Warren was growing up in the 50s and 60s. As far as her mother was concerned, though, college and a career would get in the way of marriage, and that was the important thing. In her memoir, Warren remembers that when she'd tell people she wanted to teach, her mom would interrupt and say, but she doesn't want to be an old maid school teacher, right, Betsy? My mother wanted me to get married to a good provider and have babies and be safe. She didn't want me to do anything else. So it wasn't specific about teaching. Teaching or being a nurse, those were kind of the two options when I was a little girl. It's that she wanted me focused on marrying the right man. 
And your relationship with her over this was really tense. It yes, was, it was. She yeah. hit you at some point in a yeah. fight over whether you were going to go to college. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, look, she just wanted the best for me. My fortunes would be tied to the man I married. And she thought I was a pretty iffy case. Did you think you were an iffy case oh, on yeah. that front? Why? No, I know. I never quite felt like I fit. I wasn't pretty. I, I was, I somehow was just never good at quite fitting in and going along. You know, I was one of the kids who always looked over at the popular girls and thought, they got something I don't got. <laughs> and if I'd been able to name what it was, maybe I would have had it, but I didn't and couldn't. You write in one of your books that you were never good at making boys feel like they were smarter than you. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> You know, I used to watch when uh, my debate partner, Carl, and I, we were one of the few boy-girl debate teams. Uh, they were mostly boy-boy because debate was largely boys. And you'd watch in the early years of our debating, two guys walk in, glance over, see me and think, mm, easy pickings. You know, you could just kind of see it in their faces, this sort of oh, we're going to take this one out. And uh, I confess, there came a point where I liked it. <laughs> you liked the fact that they underestimated you. Sure. Why not? <laughs> you you figure out the way to go to college mm -hmm. on a debate scholarship, mm -hmm. and you get a full ride to George Washington. Yep. And then what do you do? I get married and drop out at 19. Warren has written that she never really thought any man would ask her to marry him. So when her high school boyfriend showed up and proposed, she was so shocked that she said yes right away. She left college. She was giving up her scholarship and her dream of becoming a teacher. But she didn't last long as a dropout. Pretty soon, she was back in school, juggling college classes and later law school with caring for two small kids. She and her husband divorced just as she was starting her career as a law professor. And her work was actually what brought her together with the man who became her second husband. He was a law professor, too. You get divorced, and then you meet another man, Bruce Mann. Right. And where and under what circumstances did you propose to Bruce Mann? <laughs> so I had just finished watching him teach a class. And what was it? It was really good. <laughs> it was a property class. And, That's and hot. so he walked back and he was, um, the, the students had filed out. He'd finished answering questions. And so it's just the two of us left in this classroom. And he, he walks up to me. I, I had been sitting in the back. I don't think any of the students knew I was there. And I know this anxiety as a teacher. He said, well... What did you think with that kind of, and I said, hey, you know, what can I say? Will you marry me? <laughs> and he said, yeah, uh, he took me up on it. But, you know, did you really intend it as a serious proposal or as kind of a line? I did. No, okay. <laughs> it was like the thing I needed to know. I couldn't be married to another teacher if I didn't respect his teaching. I just couldn't. And watching him teach, he was good and engaged and cared and had all the right pieces. And he was cute, and I was already pretty crazy about him. So, yeah, actually, I was, I was serious. 
By 1995, she joined the faculty at Harvard Law School. And she was still teaching there when Rebecca first met her, 16 years later. The way that I first began to think about her as a teacher actually was when I first began to think of her as a subject of my journalism. I was asked to profile her in 2011, just just as she had announced that she was going to run for the Senate seat that was then occupied by Republicans, Scott Brown in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. But this was her first time in electoral politics. And so me trying to figure out how to profile this woman, one of the first things I did was start to talk to her students because at that point, in fact, that semester, it was the fall of 2011, was her last semester teaching, but she was still teaching. Uh And I interviewed a lot of her students and they were so over the moon about her that they were essentially unquotable in that piece. (laughs) What were they saying? What kinds of things were they saying? They said, Wonder Woman wishes she could be Elizabeth Warren. The thing is, have you ever had a really great teacher? Yes, I have. Right. And you know the way that you feel about, I mean, have you felt really strongly about a great teacher? Yeah, well, like you feel like, oh my God, this person is opening up everything new that I want to think about. They're changing the way my brain works. It's so exciting. You know, like it's a big deal. Right. So I'm not in any way suggesting that everyone who's ever been in Elizabeth Warren's classroom feels that way about her, but Mm -hmm. some number of them do. That's really good head, Rebecca. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true because I've talked to a lot of them. As soon as I started talking about how, you know, talking to some students, they basically started crawling down my chimney. Elizabeth Warren was very much a rock star on the Harvard Law School campus. We called up some of Warren's former students. And yes, there was gushing. She would come into a room for a law school event and it was just immediately would be mobbed. There'd be a circle of students around her. Professor Warren is the best teacher I've had by far. It's not even close. She, she's just a great, great teacher. Oh, I mean, she was absolutely, you know, one of or the best. Like, no question. I'm, I'm a big fan of hers. There are a number of Republicans who don't want to be quoted because they don't want to further her presidential chances. Yeah. But they thought she was a great teacher. <laughs> and there are others who have talked publicly about this. Like Senator Tom Cotton, who is a hard-right Republican. And who has said in various places, he was a student of Elizabeth Warren's, and he has said she is the most rigorous teacher I ever had. And he's spoken about her with great warmth as a teacher, even as he viciously opposes her ideologically and politically. (laughs) Warren was a law professor. She did her job by asking questions. This is a method you see in a lot of law school classes. Instead of standing in front of the room and lecturing to deliver a lesson, the professor goes around asking students questions, trying to get them to do the hard work of thinking things through for themselves. And when Warren did this, she did it in such an intense way that students who took her class years ago still remember how it felt. She uh, was not afraid to instill fear in the hearts of her students, and I certainly felt that, that fear and intimidation. Well, I sat in the front row of her class and I remember one day she called on me and I was so, I was surprised. I think she'd called on me the week before or the class before or something, so I wasn't expecting it. And I wound up grabbing my friend's knee, basically, and like digging my nails into his knee as I tried to answer this question because I was just so taken aback and shocked and frankly just scared of, of the situation and of answering. I'm not a person who normally, you know, is particularly concerned about what others think, but there's something about the classroom environment that that she created very deliberately that really made you feel 
um, accountable, you know, for all of your answers and all of your everything, every word that came out of your mouth in a way that, frankly, you would be in a courtroom. She is. She's just ferocious in her questioning. There's no way around it. She's just a, a, a smart person who knows how to ask good questions. And it's it's really scary when you're on the receiving end of them. I mean, John Delaney found that out the other night in the debate. And focus on those kitchen table pocketbook issues that matter to hardworking Americans, building infrastructure, creating jobs, improving their pay, Thank you, creating universal health care, lowering drug prices. Senator Warren. Do it. You know, I don't understand why anybody does to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. It's like every day you go in and you've got, what, like a one in four chance of, of, of complete evisceration in front of 120 people. I'm, I'm an appellate lawyer now in my grown up life, and I answer questions from panels of judges and justices for a living. And I have never been as scared in a courtroom as I was in her classroom. No, nothing that's ever going to happen to me in my career will be as bad as what happened to me in that classroom, at least in terms of somebody asking me questions and me struggling to answer. Lots of law students find that barrage of questions technique frightening. You may recall its potential as a dramatic device from such films as Legally Blonde. You're being tested in front of all your peers. But when Warren did it, she wasn't just trying to make sure everyone had done their homework. She says she was trying to make sure everyone was heard. That's not always what happens if you're waiting for people to raise their hands. The reason I never took volunteers, you take volunteers, you're going to hear mostly from men. Because they have a lot more confidence that, hey, I know what this is. And and they'll get those hands up. Um, And my view was it was my job to make sure whose voices we were hearing in that room and that we were hearing from men and from women. We were hearing from African-American students and Latinx students and, and Asian-American students. We were hearing from students who were a little bit older and from the youngest student in the class. That's my responsibility as the teacher. And the way I make sure that happens is I call on 40, 50 people an hour and get everybody in the game. So she was calling on dozens of students rapid fire, But at the same time, with each one, she was having a person-to-person encounter. In that sense, being a law professor wasn't so different from what she first loved about teaching when she was a second grader, sounding out words with the kids who didn't know how to read. You're right there with someone who's struggling, and you get to see the moment the lights go on. Here's how she explained it to Rebecca. For that time I've called on you, Rebecca, and I'm looking straight at you. We're doing the eye contact. Here's my job. You've got one end of a giant rubber band. I've got the other. And I need to pull hard enough that you're exercising. It's really making you stretch, okay? It's making you work hard, but not so hard that the thing breaks and comes back and snaps you in the face. So we're, you, you ask me, Rebecca, this question, mm-hmm. and I screw it up. What happens then to me as a student in your class? Because you know, I've also talked to students who were terrified of you, and you have talked to me in the past about priding yourself on being a somewhat terrifying teacher. <laughs> Not terrifying. Right. Okay. The point was tough, but at the end, you figured out how good you are. Of course, when you're teaching a class at Harvard, you're looking out at a room full of people who are extremely eager to please their teacher. They're terrified of not pleasing their teacher. But not all students are like that. 
And that can be terrifying for the teacher, as we will discuss after the break. The kids were wild. They cut each other's hair. They cut each other's clothes. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. We come to you this week from the sun porch of Senator and presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren's house, where she's been drinking iced tea and talking about teaching with Rebecca Traister. We've heard about Warren's time terrifying Harvard Law students, and we've seen her on the presidential debate stage, filleting John Delaney. But we now turn to Warren's toughest matchup, a room full of 10-year-olds. Back when she was a young law professor, she got a request. The preacher at Missouri City Methodist Church talks me into teaching this fifth grade Sunday school class, and it was a total disaster. One teacher after another had quit. Uh, these kids, this particular fifth grade this class? This particular fifth grade class was known as being um, uh, pretty wild. And my kids were still little. So I hadn't had any experience yet with kind of that fifth grade age. And my law school's students were a little better behaved, a little more <laughs> self-disciplined by this point. So so I still remember the preacher had said to me, you know, I, I was somebody you could count on to bring a covered dish. I was helped with the costumes for, you know, Christmas pageant and things like that. But I hadn't volunteered to teach Sunday school. I'm not. And so the preacher really, I mean, he really put the strong arm on me. I should have known when he said, look, as long as nobody gets hurt, it'll be a success. <laughs> I was like, whoa. So anyway, I agreed to do this thing. And the pattern is supposed to be, you know, that you you teach them a little lesson. You get a book that helps you out on doing this. And then you do a little art project. And then you give them cookies and juice and, you know, and the hour's over. And you say, thank you, Lord, and it's all over. Right. So in the first few weeks that I did this, it was one disaster after another. I had no control over what was going on. The kids were wild. The art projects were all disasters. They cut each other's hair. They cut each other's clothes. Uh, they spilled stuff everywhere. The boys climbed out the window at one point. Fortunately, we were on the first floor. So after a few weeks of this, I just thought, this is awful. I mean, this is really terrible. And I thought, I'm going to have to go to the preacher and just say to him, I'm sorry, you just got to get somebody who's better than I am. And I thought, wait a minute, what am I going to tell him? Uh, sorry, I can teach tough classes in law school, but I can't teach a bunch of fifth graders? Come on. So I thought, okay, you know how to teach. Teach them like you teach them in law school. So, <laughs> so I come in with a story. I still remember the first story I did. I came in with Noah, and I had it printed up, you know, the kid's yeah. version, passed it out, one sheet to everybody. And I said, I want you all to read this. So they read, they giggle, and they carry on a little bit. And I said, so how do you think Noah felt when he heard this voice? And there's a lot of giggling. And, you know, he thought he was going crazy. He thought he had a worm in his ear, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and they see how many funny things. But they actually got interested in the question. What would it be like? to be somebody who had a job, who did things, who had a family, who was kind of a success in his his community. And, and he hears God talking to him. Does he know it's God? How does he figure out? He's like, what? 
would you really sell your stuff? Would you buy the lumber? Would you, you know, would you do these things? And when other people start saying, oh, no, you're nuts. This makes no sense at all. So they got engaged in the story. And before you know it, it was time for juice and cookies. And then everybody went home. So I thought, dang, that worked. So every week, that's what it became. We dropped the art projects because they... God bless art teachers. I'm not one of them. <laughs> so we dropped the art projects, went straight to we do the stories. So they were wrestling with the story or wrestling with what it meant. And I loved my fifth graders. But for me, that then showed me the link that hadn't quite been at the front of my brain. And that was, look, in all my cases of teaching, it's about figuring out where you are, adding a little to it, and then seeing, trying to help you make something of this. And that's, that's the magic. Listening to the way people talk about a presidential race, you sometimes get the impression that voters are a bunch of unruly fifth graders. No one knows how to handle us, and no one really thinks we're going to listen. It's like the political media always expects us to be climbing out the windows and cutting each other's hair. At this stage of the campaign, the candidates are still writing their names on the chalkboard, figuring out how to get the class's attention. I, I know, I know what's broken. I know what a good plan is to fix it. But I've got to figure out how to communicate that. With actual fifth graders, she figured it out. The answer wasn't to change who she was. It was to trust that they'd stay with her if she could do what she did best. Teach. You've been called school marmish. Right. Okay. So the very, the very term, right? What is a school marm? It's a teacher. And so there, it seems to me that there's, and I, I have seen, even in recent press, she can sound lecturing, she, hectoring. Some of that is certainly gendered, especially given that teaching is a profession that women could enter and, you know... Um, but there is the more serious version of the critique, which is, look, what vo voters, and especially in this moment, one of the reasons that we have Donald Trump rising is because is because voters don't want to be condescended to by elites. They don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to want to feel like somebody's chasing them for their homework. And so there seems to be there's like the possibility of being the good teacher. And then there's the sort of resentments that are built in towards somebody who might come and function as a teacher. Do you think about that at all? Is that a gap that you can bridge strategically? No. I, because I think it's, I think, look, uh, that's right. Nobody wants to be talked down to. Uh, nobody. And that's true whether we're talking about big national audiences or law students or fifth graders or little tiny kids. Nobody likes to be talked down to. But that's not what teaching, good teaching, is all about. Good teaching is about the teacher having the confidence in you to know that if you had a little bit more information, you might, you might move a little bit. We know what's wrong in this country. I, look, I'm not, I'm not surprising anybody when I talk about the corruption in Washington. Lots of folks nod. The part that's surprising is that we could actually do something about it that would be effective, that there are real plans that 
We could beat it back. We could change it. And the consequence of changing it would be real. It would be something you could feel in your life. It would be something you could feel in this country. Plenty of people can remember their scary teachers. But like Rebecca was saying, plenty of people can remember their great teachers, too. And sometimes those teachers are the same ones. They're the teachers who are great because they're a little scary. They've got high expectations. And it means they get more from their students than their students thought they had to give. Her class is a horrible experience, but it was also an incredibly valuable experience. And I think everybody who went through it respects what she put into it and, and why she did it. That's Jay, who said that Warren's class was tougher than any courtroom he'd ever faced. And when we talked to him, we asked what he made of her chances in this presidential race. Would the American people ever go for a teacher-in-chief? Uh, far be it for me to say what the American people want, um, but maybe that's what the American people need. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. You can read Rebecca Traster's feature on Elizabeth Warren's teaching career at thecut.com. And if you liked this episode, we have plenty more stories for you. Like when we talked to Stacey Abrams about her love of television. In our family, we had one television. And my older sister, her senior year of high school, got a television. And that was like someone won the lottery and it wasn't me. <laughs> when Stacy got her first credit card in college, she knew exactly what she wanted. A TV of her own. She talked about that and more in our episode, Family Money. Check it out. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby and Lynn Levy. Mixing is by Emma Munger and Bobby Lord. Our music is by Emma Munger, Haley Shaw, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvanesso. Special thanks this week to Noreen Malone. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.